A reading from James, chapter 2, page 1213 in your church Bibles. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are, who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism... You sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Our our gospel reading is taken from Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39, which can be found on page 1068 of the Church Bibles. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the, into the lake, and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, 
they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Do please take your seats. And before I come and speak, I'm going to just ask Martin to play uh, a short video clip, or part of a short video clip. I got in with the wrong crowd, and I started to um, pinch cars, burglar houses, uh, become known, me and my friends become known as very high-profile thieves, really. I used to carry big knives, uh, the, the big knives to the smaller knives down my waist, and I was the kind of person where if you pulled a knife out, I would use it. I ended up stabbing someone in the head. I ended up um, stabbing someone just missing his heart and going through the top of his shoulder, uh, the, the top of his chest and his shoulder away. He dropped to the floor, and so I was on the run for two attempted murders. And then I was just, when I went to prison, I had such a hatred for the system. And I couldn't handle being told what to do, couldn't handle prison officers mucking me about. When I went out on association, I got the prison officer and I, uh, I stabbed him. And then this led to me going into maximum security prisons, being put on CSC. It's where they feed you through a hatch in the door. There's no physical contact, so they have to have riot shields and riot gear on. Um, and that was my life for a long, long time. So, here's a question. Would you associate with that man? Quite a character. Had done a lot of, has done a lot of evil things in his life. Would we associate with that man? Or for that matter, would we associate with the demon-possessed man in this gospel story that Tracy read to us? When I was at school, at the age of about 10 or 11, uh, a new pupil arrived on the scene. He was tall, he was blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and he was by far the fastest runner in the school. No one could get anywhere near him. But he wasn't very clever. At least, he didn't perform very well at his academic work, because he consistently came bottom of the class by quite a margin. Now, I was at an old-fashioned boarding school, and it was in the days when those who did badly in class were usually shamed or punished rather than helped and encouraged. But I began to notice that for some reason, although everyone else who got bad marks 
got reprimanded by the headmaster quite publicly for doing so, this particular boy never seemed to be in trouble over it. In fact, it seemed as if he couldn't do anything wrong in the headmaster's eyes. And it used to infuriate me because it seemed so unfair. So here's a question. Do you have favourites? Do you have favourites? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, no, no, I don't show favouritism. I don't have favourites. But, you know, I think if that's really true, then I suggest that you're quite a rare specimen. James, the brother of Jesus, couldn't be clearer in the opening passage of this next uh, part of his letter to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. It was obviously an issue. Clearly James thinks there's a problem, that people are showing favoritism and he doesn't think it's right. Why is that? Is there really something wrong with having our favourites? After all, it doesn't feature in the Ten Commandments. So if I like a particular person more than another person, is that a sin? Well, the Oxford English Dictionary says that that's not quite the case because favouritism is the practice of giving special treatment to a person or group. It's not about whether you like somebody more or less than somebody else. It's the practice of giving special treatment to one person or group over another. So it's about how we treat others. And James goes on to give us a clear example in verses 2 to 4. He says, in effect, that if, if you turn up, uh, if someone turns up to your meeting dressed in the latest fashionable clothes with the best designer labels and you make a big fuss of them, but when a poor grubby person arrives, you effectively sideline them, then you've shown discrimination and you've judged with evil thoughts, he says. That's favouritism. Because you've treated two people differently because you somehow think it will be to your advantage, possible advantage, to cosy up to this person rather than that person, perhaps to the well-off rather than the poor. Now, we all might be thinking, well, okay, I hear that, but I don't do that. That's not me. I'm, I'm in the clear on this favouritism thing. But actually, what does this look like in our lives? How does it play out in our homes, in our workplaces, or maybe even in church life? Well, in our homes, we might show favouritism by only inviting to our house those particular family members and friends to dinner or Sunday lunch or on holiday with us or whatever it is, whom we particularly click with. You know, the awkward cousin or the argumentative nephew or the slightly embarrassing aunt, well, they simply don't get invited. In our workplaces... I remember, as a manager, spending a lot more time with those people who I got along with easily. And I tended to avoid those who asked awkward questions or complained about aspects of their jobs. We had field engineers stationed all around the country in these industrial plants. And I would tend to visit the ones who would welcome me and make me a coffee and share a joke with me. And and more often than not... I didn't visit the ones 
who asked the difficult questions. That was favoritism. That was treating some of my employees differently to others, not being prepared to listen to those who would maybe give me a harder time. And what about church life? Well, it's so easy, isn't it, to come in to spot someone we know or particularly get on with and sit down next to them rather than the visitor that we don't know and then perhaps huddle with our friends over coffee after the service at the church hall, which is great, but maybe ignore the person who's sitting on their own because perhaps they don't have the confidence to open up a conversation or maybe they don't know anyone. We've all done it. I've done it. I expect you have too. James is saying that we need to treat people the same, whatever they are, whether they're rich, poor, smart, grubby, outgoing, quiet, popular, less so, easy, difficult. But he particularly singles out people who are not as well off as we are. One of the things I love about St. Matthew's is that we have a wonderfully diverse congregation in every sense. We have well-off property owners, people on housing benefit. We have professionals, people on lower incomes, unemployed. We have people who struggle to pay the bills, as well as people who contribute significant sums of money to keep the church going and for the ministries to run and the holiday clubs to run and all of those good things. And the wonderful thing is that we all get along pretty well together. One of the strong themes that's coming through the feedback from the surveys that we're in the middle of, for those, if you're new to St. Matthews, you don't know about this, but, but we, we've recently put a survey out to the congregation about the future of St. Matthews, uh, perhaps the pattern of Sunday worship and other questions about how we'll go forward. But one of, the, one of the strong themes that comes through the feedback from the survey is the importance that people place on the church family, and that includes everyone. So favouritism has no part to play in church life, says James, the brother of Jesus. And next, he gives us God's perspective on the subject. Clearly, some of the churches that he's writing to are under the false impression, which was actually a common misunderstanding in the ancient world, that if a person was well off, that if they were doing well, it meant that God was blessing them. And conversely... If someone was poor or struggling in life, then they were out of favour with God. But not so, says James. That's not the case. In verse 5, he even says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? About 14 years ago, Kirsty and I paid our first visit to one of the shanty towns in the Limpopo province of South Africa where our friend Mary Stevenson was running an HIV AIDS project, helping some of the poorest people I've ever come across, where the death rate from AIDS was so high that it was a very exceptional family that had not lost someone to the disease. And Mary took us to choir practice um, in the township, in, in, in this uh, in this real, real, something that probably looked like what we would call a slum, I suppose. She took us to choir practice on the Tuesday night, which consisted of a group of about half a dozen teenagers and young adults under a corrugated iron roof where they met to sing. And just about all of them had one thing in common, was that they had no parents because they'd lost them 
to HIV AIDS. But what took our breath away, what stunned us incredibly as we joined them, was the look on their faces and in their eyes. They were so in love with Jesus. They loved God with a passion. And although they had nothing materially, they were full of love for God and their faces shone. I, think, I, I honestly think when I saw them, I, it reminded me of when Moses face shone when he came out of the tent of meeting and I thought gosh they look like they've been in the presence of the Lord and they praised God they thanked him for the life they had for his love for them because although they didn't have an earthly mum or dad they knew perhaps in a more powerful way than we will ever know that they were sons and daughters of a God who loves them who's adopted them into his family that they're dearly loved by a saviour who sacrificed his life for them. And James says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? That verse became a reality for me when we visited that township. And I think one of the greatest dangers for us in the West is that we are impressed by wealth. We're impressed by technology, material possessions, be they clothes or cars, and we can too easily favour those who have over those who have not. But James tells us here that it's not God's perspective. He tells us in verse 8 that the way to avoid favouritism is to keep what he calls the royal law. In other words, love your neighbour as yourself. In fact, in the Old Testament law, God had spoken pretty clearly on the subject. In Leviticus 19, it says, Do not show partiality to the poor or favouritism to the rich, but judge your neighbour fairly. And when a bunch of people asked Jesus, Who then is our neighbour? In this context, Jesus told one of the most famous stories on earth about the Good Samaritan. And in that story, a Jewish man is left robbed and beaten on the road. And it's a Samaritan who would normally have been his sworn enemy who goes to his aid. Loving our neighbour means acting in love towards those who we might not normally be expected to act in love toward. Loving our neighbour means showing love to a person whether we particularly like them or not. James says in verse 9, that not to do this is to act against God, to sin, in other words. And he points out that this sin of favouritism is as serious as any other. And it can be really hard. There are some people in the world that each of us will find it really difficult to get along with and love. And so what we need is God's perspective. Because when God looks at a broken, flawed human being like you or me or that not-so-lovable person, he doesn't see what we see. In fact, he sees so much more. In God's mercy, he sees what a person might become if they're changed by his love. He sees our potential as sons and daughters in his family. He sees the people we might become if we were transformed by his Holy Spirit living in us. That's why he sent us his son. 
He didn't leave us in our sinful predicament. Although we're deserving of his judgment, he loves us and he has mercy. God's law, says James in the concluding verses of this passage, is one of mercy that brings freedom. We're not to judge, because if we do, then we too will be judged, as Jesus said. Our prayer needs to be for more of God's spirit in our lives, more of his love in our hearts, more of his perspective on the world and the people we share our lives with. Because he can take any human heart and work miracles with his love. And in that way, we won't have favourites. And I just want to finish by seeing how our friend, who we started with, got on in the end. Thank you, Martin. Uh, I just was going from prison to prison, prison to prison. But then I ended up going to Long Larton in Worcestershire. And when I was in there, I ended up going in an Alpha course. Never heard of an Alpha course. Didn't know anything. And I just remember walking in because they'd sent me down. I sat down on a chair. And I thought, oh, no, it's a Christian thing. And we'd just go there every week and I would argue. And the pastor, um, I remember he come to me. He said, right, I'm going to say a few scriptures first before we pray. And one of them was, no one's righteous, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. And then he said the verses about Jesus and explained a bit why he died on the cross for sinners and stuff. And then he said, pray. So I started praying. And I said, uh, God, I said, God, if you're real, come into my life because I hate who I am. And nothing happened. But then, as I was talking to the pastor, I started to feel this energy feeling in my stomach. And it started to raise up and raise up and raise up and raise up. And I just broke out into uncontrollable um, tears. And I just sobbed. <clears throat> and I just... Right there. Because that was a change in my whole life. I knew God was real. Um, and no one will change that now. And then I remember <laughs> running on the wing. People clearly knew that I would become a Christian. So I actually helped them on another two Alpha courses. And then I, um, I got released. I've been in a prison where I... Because you would have thought that the prison where I stopped the prison officers would have been the last prison to have me. But they were the first. That's how God works. The best thing for me is going in prisons and helping the lads in prison and, and trying to tell them about God. I've got um, four kids and then my life. Um, and what upsets me is because now I know um, that back then, if I had the kids, uh, they wouldn't have had a good upbringing. And now they sit on the night and have Bible studies with their dad. Um, <clears throat> A Bible study with a dad, have a life, the beautiful, um, and my life. And it's probably is my wife and my kids are the best gift, that, apart from the grace God's given me, is the best gift I've ever, he'll ever give me. Didn't expect to cry like that. Recovered now. It's a lovely story, isn't it? Of 
of a life transformed by God's love and, uh, and a father who's now um, loving his life after a rather bad start. Well, we're going to, the music team are going to come up again now and um, we're going to sing again. And I think the secret really to loving others, not having favourites, but treating everyone with God's love is, is the walk of faith rather than going on appearances. The chorus of this song is, is about walking by faith and not by sight. Let's stand and sing together.